Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. Thank you for joining me in this podcast series in which I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for your medical practice. In this episode, we have a conversation with a radiologist about back pain, a radiological perspective. It is estimated that up to 80% of the population will experience back pain at some time in their lives with presentations from adolescents right through to elderly. Back pain is the third most common reason for visits to a medical practitioner. And in many instances, treatment strategies have already been sought elsewhere from chiropractors, physiotherapists, myotherapists, personal trainers, and osteopaths. As medical practitioners, of course, we can interrogate further radiologically. And radiological interrogation and guided analgesic and steroid injection offers clear insights in many instances to the causes, possible treatment strategies, and prognosis. From sprains and strains, which are tears in tendon or muscle, to traumatic injuries resulting in disrupture, to the myriad of degenerative problems, including intervertebral disc degeneration, spondylosis, arthritis and inflammatory diseases, spinal nerve compression, radiculopathy, spinal cord compression, cauda equina syndrome, osteoporosis and malignant infiltration, we turn to radiology for answers and guidance. So in a moment, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Max Kuperschmidt, radiologist from IMED, who will guide us through his own heuristic in approaching this common but often complex problem. I'll also ask Max to comment a little on radiation exposure, noting that we normally receive three millisieverts per year of radiation. It's about a third from cosmic radiation and about two thirds from radon gas, which comes from the radioactive decay of radium from uranium. And this is present in small amounts in rock and earth and accumulates in buildings. We have a little more radon exposure in mountainous regions and a little more cosmic radiation exposure on long-haul flights. Having a chest X-ray is equivalent to 0.02 millisieverts or about seven days of background exposure. CT scanning, especially CT of the abdomen and pelvis, with modern scanners, gives an exposure of about 2.6 years. CT angiography, about three years. CT colonography, about two years, mammography, about seven weeks, DEXA studies, about three hours, but PET scans, about eight years equivalent of background radiation. MRI, of course, delivers none. The additional lifetime risk from a CT scan for both fatal and non-fatal malignancy is about 1,100, equivalent to drowning. As medical practitioners, I think we do need to be aware of exposure risks and think very carefully about this before CT interrogation of our younger patients where the lifetime risk is very real. And please welcome radiologist Dr. Max Cooper-Schmidt to the conversation. Max Cooper-Schmidt, I'm gonna welcome you to Everyday Medicine. Max, thank you very much for joining me as a radiologist to talk about they're sort of the radiologist's approach to the management of a very common problem, the management of back pain. And Max, you know, we've, we've shared a lot of patients over the last few years. I would like to ask you before we launch into this discussion about uh, back pain and radiology, about why you entered radiology. What, what was it that drew you into that specialty, Max? Tell me a little bit about your journey into radiology. Well, uh, for having me on the program. First of all, um, Thank you. Well, the journey into radiology, um, when I came to Australia in the middle of year 10, um, in speak English, I worked really hard, 
I wanted a better future. So I thought I'll aim for the stars to get to the moon. Everyone in my family were engineers. I was planning to be an engineer, but I thought I said myself the highest bar can, medicine, then probably will be enough to get into engineering. Then somehow by accident, I got into medicine. And everybody said, isn't it fantastic? I said, okay, I'll be the first in my family to be different. And had absolutely no idea about what medicine involves. A lot of kids, were well, um, young people that I went through medicine had their family members who were doctors or had some understanding of what medicine is. To me, it, you know, it was completely foreign. And on top of that, I struggled a lot with uh, still not speaking much English when I was in the beginning of medicine. I struggled with study. And I had this difficult choice to make. You know, do I persevere with medicine, which I don't understand why I'm doing it. It's all about memorizing medical school, uh, at least in the beginning, rather than understanding. Or do I switch to engineering, where I knew I would excel because I always wanted to be one and I knew I was very good at it. And it was a lot of understanding rather than memorizing. I needed to have a reason of why I'm doing medicine. When I looked at it, I realized that as you go through medical school, you don't actually know what you're going to be practicing. We all get the same degree, but some become psychiatrists, surgeons, and physicians, GPs, radiologists, all the different jobs. And I needed the reason to get the struggles through medicine, which was for me a big struggle, especially in the beginning. It's much easier later on. And I looked around and I tried lots of different things, uh, sort of spoke to a lot of different consultants. And, and in the fourth year, somebody suggested radiology. And I thought, I looked into it and I flipped through the radiology journals and I thought it's all about technology. Well, as close to engineering as you can get in medicine. And I thought, this is it. This is for me. And I set myself this goal again. I'm going to be a radiologist. And I was still in Philadelphia Medical School to give me a, a purpose of doing medicine, which at that stage was very foreign to me. Because medical school, was in my days, was a lot about memory and regurgitation rather than understanding and concepts and application of your knowledge. Yeah. I managed to get through the medical school and I, I still had that ambition to do the radiology and I approached radiology departments even when I was in medical school telling them I want to be a radiologist and somehow managed to get into radiology, managed to get through the radiology. So I started in for one reason, but then I realized that a lot of radiologists do things differently. So I'm sure the same for other specialties. Medicine is not a job, it's a craft and it's application of who we are. It's just a tool and everybody uses it differently. And there are lots of different types of radiologists. And a lot of radiologists' idea, the ideal job is to sit in a dark room, exactly as the stereotype is, sit in a dark room, not to be interrupted, to get through a lot of work, go home on time and get paid and not think about it. And to them, radiology is images. And there is the other opposite spectrum where a radiologist is a clinician and a physician and tries to help, first of all, which is what applies to me, maybe too philosophical, but I actually use it on every day-to-day basis. Now, my job, I see, is not to make a diagnosis. My job is to help the referring clinician to look after their patients, and I do that by making a diagnosis. And the beauty of radiology that I see, I actually see a lot of patients through the day, you know, every image I look at a patient and I always joke that it's not a good case, not a good thing to be an interesting case to a doctor. But I see a lot of people I always feel bad about saying that's an interesting case because behind every image there is a patient. But a lot of interesting My observation of you, Max, is that you are part physician 
and part radiologist because I think you've got a real interest in uh, sort of the clinical problems behind uh, the films that you're seeing, which is why we love talking to you. You know, I think it's very helpful for us as clinicians to have that conversation with you. And, you know, it's very good to have that feedback. You know, a lot of radiologists, I think, do, do operate, as you say, somewhat from a dark room potentially. And, and, but it's really nice for us to have that feedback that you give us. Thanks. So uh, it's great to have you as, as uh, on the team, certainly in St John of God. So I got into radiology for one reason, but I love it for a very different reason. There's yes. very little knowledge of technology that is required to be a radiologist. Minimal, yeah. but clinical problem solving and keeping it in the context and knowing what the clinicians, because every specialty, including general practice as a specialty, they speak different languages. Yes. You know, what, what, because everybody has a different context to what. They see. I need to know all, as a as a clinical radiologist. I need to know all the different languages of all specialties to know what it means to them. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's never an objective diagnosis. Yes, it's a fracture, but what it means to different specialties, very different things. So, I, I don't think we could imagine medicine now without radiology, Max. Either, don't you think? It's it's sort of you know it's such a very important part of uh, clinical diagnosis in in Western med- practice of Western medicine, be it ultrasound, be it mammography, be it CT, MRI, and PET scans. Well, we really can't function without it generally. You know, which which leads us to the next sort of discussion, and that is about the radiological approach to back pain. T- take me through uh, your approach to working up someone with back pain, which is a very common clinical problem and very dis- debilitating for patients. And I-, I have interviewed people who are involved in pain management and involved in the um, insertion of spinal uh, canal stimulators and so forth, which is the management side of back pain. How do you work it up, Max? Take, take us through this. Uh, what- what's your workup sort of protocol? Back pain not is, as you say, common, and it's also very complex. And it's complex for a number of reasons. Um, one is that different specialties see the back pain through the different prisms. As, a, as the saying goes, when you have a camera in your hand, everything looks like a nail. So when the surgeon thinks back pain, they think, what can I cut? You know, pain specialist uh, sees, where can I implant a pain modulating device? And GP thinks, what what do I do kind of thing? So that's that's the hard part. And uh, there are very little uh, empirical evidence of what works and what doesn't. A lot of studies are done, again, by subspecialties with pre-set agendas when they do the studies. Mm. They make a lot of assumptions. Um, for example, everybody thinks, what is the use of epidural? When I spoke to, quite recently, to six or seven different radiologists who do epidural injections, we all use different techniques. We inject different amount and different type of injected stuff. So, you know, everybody assumes that all epidural injections are the same, but they're not. We all do them differently and all the facet injections are different. So the control for that is very, very hard. Patients present differently and, you know, it, it's, it's a very complex problem. And if it was easy, we would know about it and everybody would have sorted it out a long time ago. So... How do we resolve this? How do I resolve that? Um, now, first of all, I treat the patient, not, not the pictures and not the problem. Often people think of back pain and let's do some imaging and see what's broken and try to fix it. But you need to correlate the pictures to what the patient is feeling and what they're experiencing. And I try to go back to the basic clinical history followed by examination and only then I look at the images. And... The clinical history, when I think about it, when I approach it a little bit in a surgical sleeve, I think about the anatomical structures that can be involved. 
and from general practice point of view, um, who are general physicians in, in, in a sense, um, that's probably the best way to go. And there are a limited number of anatomical structures there. There's facets, there are vertebrae, uh, there are discs, um, and there are lots of other small things that can happen to them. And to make things more complex, there is often interplay between them because it's such a tight space. For example, when a facet is inflamed, the tissue around it is inflamed, including an adjacent nerve root. Mm. And then the nerve root can be affected and mask the symptoms of what is actually causing the problem. They may be treating a nerve root pain, but the problem is coming from a facet. Really need to try to think what, what is the most important thing. And then look out for the uh, red flags, you know, because we might be treating, and I have had through my career a few times, requests for facet injections or nerve root injections just to find out later that the patient had back pain coming from cancer or from osteoporosis mm. or from other things. And they can mask things. You really need to, or spinal canal stenosis. You think about what is the anatomical structure, but to make sure that there are no anatomical pathologies that are based on different anatomies present slightly differently. And if one takes time to take history and examine, probably you'll be able to um, get it right in at least 80 to 90% of the time. Well, so, what what sort of imaging modality would you normally recommend in the workup of a back pain? Say from a general practice point of view, I, I think probably a lot of us think about CT scanning or MRI scanning. Well, you know, the plain X-ray not so important anymore. What, do you have any comments to make about that? Different modalities have different uh, advantages and disadvantages. It's important to understand and use the right tool for the right reasons. And complicating factor is Medicare rebate for MRI. Yeah. But it is cannot refer as easily. But let's go through that. So the plain X-ray. Um, the, the advantage of plain X-ray over other uh, other modalities is that you pretty much the main the main thing is you can look at general alignment. And you can do dynamic views such as flexion, extension, uh, bend, you know, weight-bearing views. And some specialists, typically subspecialists, neurosurgeons, spinal surgeons, may find those useful in certain situations. So um, that's probably not ideal for most GPs as a starting point, even though they often say to do the X-ray. You know, X-ray, you may miss things, it may hide things, and it may delay the diagnosis unless... Uh, there's history of trauma, immediate trauma, then you may start with an X-ray. But CT, on the other hand, is just a better X-ray, a more detailed X-ray. And that would be the starting point for most uh, GPs. And um, followed by, uh, and CT has some advantages of MRI. People think MRI is more expensive, so it must be better. But there are certain things that CT is better than the MRI. For example, CT can see the bone cortex much better. If somebody has discitis, the best things are called cod discitis, called abscess. Um, they're called the TB or viral, which happens to some patients. The typical classic bacterial discitis, the first thing that happens because of hyperemia, the end plate gets resolved. And you can actually see those changes very quickly on CT. 
Right. Uh, all you're seeing is a little bit of edema, and it's not defin- the diagnosis is not definitive by any means. Mm. So I've seen quite a few cases where I was able to diagnose that on CT faster than on MR, um, and it was definitive that it, you know, eventually later it, it holds. Uh, CT can see gas better than MRI, so MRI, sometimes you think it's a disc protrusion, but it's actually a gas-contained structure, which needs slightly different treatment or uh, a synovial cyst from uh, a facet that contains gas. And so CT has a lot of uh, advantages, and it's or a GP definitely worth studying with a CT. Um, the other thing that GPs can order is what's called SPECT-CT, and SPECT-CT is just a single positron emission computed tomography. Uh, it's, in simple terms, it's a bone scan with a CT, so that which allows an atomical correlation. And on a bone scan, we see increased metabolic turnover of the bones. So whenever there is inflammation of the bone or adjacent to the bone, it, there's more, more turnover of the, bone, of the bone, and we can see what is happening. And if there is discitis or disc-related pain or facets, uh, it's very, very useful. The experience of different specialists with it varies. So some spinal surgeons swear by it, they start by it. Some don't, don't believe in it. So if you ask specialists, they may give you different answers. But as a radiologist who sees it on my end, I think it has very, very good correlation. Right. Do, do many people order that, Max? Uh, do you have many requests for that? Enough people, and I, th- and I think if you, after you take history and examine and you think it may be a multifactorial problem, it's certainly worse worth ordering it because you may have a few facet levels involved or it's hard to localize which facet is involved and that will really tell you which one you should treat uh, as opposed to just trial and error because the other way is let's, let's, inj- let's inject this, let's inject that, let's inject that. In the meantime, the patient paid a lot of money and finally you got to the way the problem you see them. So you might as well go with the survey. It's, and again, it has a particular indications. When you suspect facet joints or sacroiliac joints, that's when I would do it. Aspects. And finally, MRI. MRI uh, has the advantage of seeing the spinal canal, which is uh, very important in, in cases where I suspect spinal canal stenosis. It's much better at assessing it than CT. Uh, MRI does see bone edema and facetal edema. Um, not all, uh, one thing to keep in mind, not all practices do MRI the same way. There are slightly different protocols. To save time, some of them skip a few sequences. Uh, which may not give you that extra information about edema of the bone or soft tissue. Uh, we in our practice, in case you would do, we do the, 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 all the sequences that are required to make that diagnosis, but not everybody does. So just because you send for MRI doesn't mean you'll get the same thing. And uh, it's pretty much it, an X-ray, CT, SPECT, CT, and MRI. Um, mm. So... Well, so in terms of if a general practitioner has a patient with back pain, Max, and uh, would it be helpful for them to talk with you before they order a particular investigation? Is that something that would be useful, yes. do you think? I would just think to me it would be one if it is more complex than usual. When you, based on your clinical judgment and experience or you think something is not quite right or you've tried treating the patient and it's not working and the images need to be reviewed and assessed uh, where we suspect there is more to it than what meets the eye, Yes. then it's worth uh, Most of the time, GPs in that case would probably refer to the spinal surgeon. Um, so I think a better education and a clinical approach is, is better than calling a radiologist every time somebody has a back yeah. pain. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 
if we can really simplify the management, and I'll tell you how I approach when some often, unfortunately, often enough, I get requests, make pain, please inject. Um, and I, I take on the role of more role of a clinician. Some radiologists will send the patient back and say, it's not my role to, to decide where to inject. You have to tell me where, where you want to inject. This is an injection of hydrocortisone. Is it into a facet joint? Yeah, that's trying to trying to treat. Yes. Yeah, right. And okay. Fortunately, I do. I agree with those radiologists in broad terms that it's abdication of your clinical responsibility when you try to rely on radiologists what what to inject. You really should at least have some. But it's faster for me to ask the patient examine them than to call around and try to create. You know, the patient is already there. Raised expectations, so I, I would treat. I'll tell you how I treat the patient. I, I ask very directed and very simple questions. The question number one is how long have you had the pain? Yeah, if the pain's been more than three to six months. It, it, it's by definition chronic pain. So the chance of treating it successfully with an injection goes down. It may temporarily alleviate it or partially alleviate the pain, but it's not going to resolve the problem. So I don't want to raise false expectations. Then I ask them, does the pain radiate? And often people think that radiating pain equates to sciatica, but it doesn't. So facet pain, because facets are synovial joints, and synovial joint pain often radiates. And it's well, classic example is um, back, uh, hip pain radiating to the knee. But so does the cervical spine can radiate to the shoulder, shoulder to the cervical spine. And facets radiates to the uh, gluteal region, to the buttock. I ask them, you know, where is the left? They say, right. And I say, does it go down your leg? And they say, yes. The next question is, does it go below the knee? Because if it doesn't go, if it goes below the knee, then it's radiculopathy. If it doesn't go below the knee, then the next question is, does it go to the front of the knee or to the back of the knee? If it goes to the front of the knee, it's L4, dermatome distribution. Back of the knee, I hemisphere region on the gluteal regions, it's a facet. The facet radiates right down and the dermatome, myotome distribution goes forward. The dermatome distribution, L4, is an anterior aspect of the knee. If they tell me that it goes below the knee, the next question I ask them, does it go to the sole of your foot or on top of the foot and the outside, which differentiates L5. You know, the great toe is pretty much L5, the little toe S1. And then I try, and that's how I try to narrow it even before I look at the images. Mm. Because it, it, it's well known by most radiologists or clinical radiologists, what it looks like on the pictures bears absolutely no relationship to what people feel. Mm. So you can have somebody with chronically compressed nerves, but no pain. And it can a structure that is inflamed, such as disc or facet, can be touching a nerve and they can be in agony with radiculopathy. Mm. But more often than not, it's actually facetal pain. When people say, I've got sciatica, it's one term that covers all the preferred pain. But most of them are not sciatica, so often it's massive. Um, in that case, if I, if, if I could hear what I do, I actually examine on the CT, but you can clinically examine. So clinically, uh, the top of the sacroiliac crest is L4-5 level. So if you press at that level, approximately the facet joint, and they jump and they say, yes, that's the pain, then you know it's the facet. So that's going from history to examination. Right, okay. Below that L4, that's the top of the sacroiliac crest, it could be L5 as one. If it's above, it's L3, 4. Very crude, but it's very effective. And what I do, I just do it, the extra thing, I tell my radiographers, I mark 
with all three levels, L3, 4, L4, 5, and L5 is one. And then I ask the patient, I'm going to press in two spots. Tell me which one hurts more, one or two. Like when you go to the optometrist, which one is better? Mm -hmm. one of them. Then I narrow it down to whichever facet is involved. Often it's more than one joint. And that's the joint that I inject. And then I ask them, is your pain better after they've done the study, which confirms that the, confirms the pre-procedure clinical diagnosis. Mm. So uh, that's my general approach. If it, if, if it is radiculopathy pain, then I look at which nerve is involved and I try to address that. There are things to be aware of. Like, uh, sorry, you want to ask? Well, I was just going to ask you, Max, just, just to pause and sort of go back fractionally. If a GP is, is met with a patient that has sciatica-type symptoms, uh, okay, it may be facet joint that's referred or it might be impingement on the sciatic nerve, what, what imaging would you recommend to the general practitioner? Would you recommend an MRI or CT? I'm really limited because of the Medicare to CT, CT structural information. MRI, if it has what's called fats of rest T2 rated sequences, uh, which basically shows where edema is, where fluid is, that may show you where the facetal edema is. So you may see the facetal plate. The important thing to remember is that the nerves, when they're compressed, there are a few things that can react to that, the way they can react. One, if it's chronic compression, there is loss of power. Yes. Two is sensation, and three is pain. And the injections only treat pain. They don't mm -hmm. change, they don't treat loss of power. They don't treat paresthesia or change in sensation. So if it's an acute onset thing, then um, injection is the right thing to do. But if with that comes loss of power, that indicates the chronicity, uh, and there is structure only. Uh, clear chronic compression based on CTO and MRI, then you really need to consider referring to a spinal surgeon. Yeah. So, yes. And, and then sort of putting it in reverse, just because you're seeing things compressed on CT doesn't mean that that's the cause of the problem. It's much clearer in the younger person where everything is relatively straightforward and there can be only one particular structure that's abnormal, like a disc protrusion or, you know, a bit of trauma that's easy but when you start getting past 40, 50 depending on what things people did through their life and how much their spine is worn out then it really starts 50, 50 is young 50 is young Max it's young but the body starts destroying but wearing out somebody was a laborer for all their life <laughs> and, then, and the, 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 the spine looks like 70 you know so yeah. and, and a lot of patients we get are well past 50 then 60s, 70s and you try to help it, but the spine looks like dog's breakfast, you know, who knows what is hurting. It doesn't matter what it looks like, it's what's hurting that they want, they want quality of life. Mm. You know, and uh, I had a few patients who you have to ask a very direct question, very important question to ask, have you had any changes to your urinary symptoms? And you need to explain to them what urinary symptoms means because they, a lot of them want to know what, what it means. Because if they have difficulty urinating or... Um, you know, any, any kind, it may indicate cord, cord compression in spinal canal stenosis. I'm sorry, not cord compression, it's called equina compression. But um, in that case, treating with injection is just delaying the proper diagnosis. They've got to exclude those red flags as well mm. as past malignancy. Mm. So, in summary, the first thing to do is to take a very good history and see whether you think it's facets, whether it's a joint. 
if you think it's one of those, then go to CT and slash FCT, and you can yeah. do them both on one thing. Yes. And then it gives very good correlation. And then uh, if you really think it's radiculopathy, then uh, CT or MRI. Okay. Uh, what, what, what can you say about the cost of some of those? Some of those uh, tests are quite expensive. Is there, do you have any comment about the cost of those? Um, yes. Well, uh, different. Obviously, it's up to the provider uh, what they charge their patients. Yes. I mean, it doesn't discount because the cost of treatment and the time taken, everything they can do, can't medicate doesn't really cover it completely. But for a CT, uh, from a patient point of view, if it's uh, uh, lumbar spine, for example, the patient is out of pocket about two hundred dollars. Um, mm. If they have concession or pension um, card, then they can be bulk billed, but otherwise it's about $200 out of pocket. Mm. Um, mm. They don't refer for MRI, um, but it's $325 out of pocket, um, mm. approximately. Um, SPECT CT, if it's one region, which lumbar spine would be one region, um, it's $215 at the moment out of pocket, and all these prices can change with time and usually. Of course, yeah, sure, sure. But just an indicator. And yeah. for attention, uh, it's XCT is well built. So yeah. um, that's pretty much it. The yeah. injections, um, are you interested in the cost of injections for um, well, or Sure, sure. Yeah, sure. What, what sort of, uh, if the GP was referring, what would that be? But for one level injection out of pocket, $290. So yes. out of pocket meaning the patient pays on the day we get the funds, some of it back on Medicare. If the person is on concession, um, then out of pocket is $161 approximately. Yes, yeah. It's two levels, then it goes up. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, their investments in one's future, aren't they, all those things? But, well, Max, that's very, very helpful running through your approach to back pain. Can you tell me another question that often comes up um, from patients and, and also doctors generally is what about the radiation exposure and, uh, you know, what should we know about that? What should we advise our patients about a plain X-ray versus a CT versus a PET scan? Can, can you tell us a little bit about radiation and perhaps the risks of radiation with radiology, modern radiology? Um, um, the overriding principle is what is known in the industry is the LARA principle that stands for as low as reasonably as acceptable oil. Yes. Yeah. So you try to at every stage of your um, That aside, we need to keep it in context. And there's a difference between the radiation that is uh, administered to the patient and the effect that it has on the patient. For example, a younger person whose body is growing uh, will have longer cumulative effect and uh, also uh, probably more problematic than an older person. So somebody who is 70 plus, I, I pretty much wouldn't care about the radiation. Right, yeah. So make no difference to them whatsoever and you really need to treat their symptoms. At the same time, somebody who is a pediatric patient, less than 20, less than 18, unless it's an referral from a specialist for a very good reason, I would not do that imaging. And we occasionally get CT requests from GPs on young patients, which is really not appropriate. They should really have an MRI because their body is growing. This, uh, there's also certain concepts of bio, bio, uh, biology and radiation where the smaller the object, the more it absorbs radiation. Mm. Uh, mm. And uh, uh, simply because of the volume. 
and then what we remember about the background radiation. So the there is a background radiation and um, in the city, for example, or in the mountains, there is more background radiation because there is more stone and cement. Yeah. Um, but then in the plain fields, there is less background radiation. And uh, yet, actually, patient, people who live in the mountains have less cancers than people who live in the plains. Uh, everything else taken into account. So we don't know enough about it as much as we'd like to know. Oh, I didn't. So, that, so there's more radiation in the mountains, more radon gas, which is from uranium breakdown. But less yeah. less malignancy. I I didn't, didn't realise that. Definitely, um, the radiation limits for different industries are different. It sounds mm. bizarre, but it, um, I we, we have TLDs for radiation, and uh, I once forgot to take it out of my pocket and put it back, and I've had very concerned phone call from the, from the authorities that I exceeded my radiation. So it was just in my pocket while I was flying. And, so pilots get a lot of radiation, and they minimal doses are much less than much higher than ours. Yes, they are. Yeah, uh, a lot of it is arbitrary. A lot of the knowledge that we have about the long term effects of radiation are done from the studies based on disasters, nuclear disasters, and that's not a broad linear uh, correlations, which is not really the best model for biological systems. There's only one study that I know. Of that looked at the long-term effects of radiation. It was in England because they have good records from NHS. And they looked at CTs done in the 80s uh, on children. And they looked at the most uh, sensitive areas, the brain, the thyroid, I think, and the lymphoma. And they saw that there was, uh, and, and in those days, CTs were much higher radiation dose than they're now, and they were much less well calibrated to children. They were pretty much giving them adult doses. And that, right, and a dose, a dose at that time would be equivalent to maybe three and a half to four years of background radiation for a CT chest or abdo. It was much higher, so even more than that. Modern scanner again, even ten years, and scanner technology makes a huge difference. Mm. So the current scanner that if the scanner was bought today with the modulation, artificial intelligence, and all these kind of complex things. The radiation dose can be reduced substantially. So the highest radiation dose that is usually given is to the abdomen and pelvis. So ordering CT abdomen and pelvis is the highest dose. And assuming it's also giving contrast and not giving contrast makes a difference because it absorbs more radiation. Right. But often we need contrast. So, but in general, in the modern scanner, probably we're down to about two years of background radiation. Mm. Mm, yes. I think so. that, uh, that study that was done in England, they found that it had increased chance of uh, cancers uh, in those kids and scanned in the 80s, one in 10,000 approximately, depending on the one in, in the thousand, one in the 10,000 was an increase. That's so, a lifetime, lifetime risk of fatal or, and non-fatal carcinomas, yeah. Uh, considering the technology has improved substantially, probably it's probably not that bad but you should only you should use it cautiously and whenever it's appropriate when the benefit outweighs the risk of doing it. Mm. Uh, so we just came back, came to a GP and said, I've had a few days of back pain. It's uh, Unless the history says sudden onset and it sounded like a pulp and you think it could be a disc that pulled, then you probably wouldn't do a CT. You would just wait and see when it goes away. They had a month or two of pain that, doesn't help, doesn't allow them sleeping, you know, interferes with their lifestyle, then you go and image it. So, it just unfortunately relies on humans being reasonable. 
Max, one thing I hadn't appreciated was that PET scan deliver uh, something like uh, 22.7 millisieverts per, per, uh, per scan, uh, which is more than what, three and a half to almost four times what a CT delivers. So PET scans are being ordered with increased, um, uh, I think, increased demand. And that's, that's quite a high radiation dose. I guess there are, they are our older population generally who are receiving PET scans, but it's quite significant. In the context of people who get PET scan, they're usually oncology patients. Yes. So their life expectancy is already reduced. Yes. Uh, and make treatment decisions. And without the PET scan, we know whether we can treat the patient or whether we should what it's chemo radiation radiation. By the time the patient is in a position where we have to ask the question, PET scan. Usually, yes. Yes, there is radiation with it, but um, without doing this test, you would, you would get a loss of what to do next. Yes. So. But Max, where do you see, do you have a sense of where radiology is heading? It's been at the vanguard of, of kind of development in medicine. You've been right at the front of all the new developments. Uh, along with some other specialties, of course, as well. And it's, I, I think you were saying one of the, it's one of the things that's attracting you to radiology. Um, you know, it's, it's technology, physics, pushing forward, developing um, new, a new frontier for us to, um, to make diagnoses. Where do you see things heading in radiology? That's a very challenging question, probably the hardest one you've asked me so far. <laughs> okay. It's also a philosophical question, I mean, um, the radiology can see can image more and more. There is a new branch radionomics where not only by medicine physicians, not only diagnosing where the cancer is, but using the same technology to administer the therapies very targeted to where the cancer is. It will continue to evolve both treatment and diagnosis. There is AI that is coming into we already have um, an iNet. We started using um, AI for chest X-ray. Developed part of the iNet uh, group of companies for chest X-ray to detect where the cancers are or where the where the radiologist should look. So as we report chest X-ray, we can choose to use this program um, called I think it's called Analyze uh, Analyze or Analyze. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Analyze thing which tells you, have you looked here, here, here? So it's assisting us in making the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That will continue to improve. I think, philosophically speaking, um, medicine is about to come the full circle. Many years ago, when we had very little knowledge, a doctor, a clinician, or somebody would say to a patient, um, I know where you're at, I know where you end up, and I will take you through that journey, almost like... Um, a man, a ferry man between the two sides of the river, carry from one side to the other. We couldn't change the course of things, but we could be there with the patient. The more we know, uh, the more we knew as a profession, the more we were defined by how much we know. And the greatest clinician or the greatest medical student were the people who remembered all the information. Mm. Mm. Artificial intelligence, all that knowledge will probably be more and more accessible. You will not need to remember what is the latest study. AI mm. will tell you that just yesterday published that tells you this is what we should do. Yes. That will buy our choices in what we should do. But what AI cannot do is replace our human component of the patient's hand. Yes. Mm. 
And um, because there was so much demand for us as clinicians to have more and more knowledge, we outsource all the patient's hand to everyone else, to nurses, physiotherapists. You know, the, the reason why the patients go to, uh, and I don't want to, to put them down to denigrate, just philosophically, they're different than osteopaths, for example. Mm. Um, also, not because osteopaths are better at treating patients' illnesses, but they're better at making patients feel good. Listen to them. And the human them. connection makes. Yeah. Human connection. We all have to remember that now, treatment. Yeah. I'm really worried about my job as a radiologist when AI can fake everything. Yes. You know, that, that's that's when I will start worrying about the when if a sense of humor can have good rapport with the patient by simply looking. When I do procedures, I walk into the room. I had a nurse working with me and she said, How do you decide how much local anesthetic to give? I said, I look in the patient's eyes. I can tell how much local anesthetic they will need by now. Because, you know, if it's five meals or ten meals, because anxiety makes plays a huge part in how the patient interprets the experience. And this is why I talk to my patients, I distract them, and half of them know about it. They say to me, I know you're talking to me to distract me, but it's working. Keep talking. And the way I found my colleague. <laughs> so, but when, when AI can do that, that's when I'll worry about my job. That's not going to happen very soon. No, AI when, when I, AI can produce a hologram, a Max Schmidt hologram, we're in trouble. Yeah, well, we can sit back and relax and have a cocktail and just, uh, you know, double check everything. That may be the future. Relationship with the clinicians, you know, when AI can send you the result that is important, but AI will not make you feel safe that there is a radiologist that you can call when you don't know what to do or when you want to get yeah. some advice. So you, so that that's when it will not replace my role as a clinician. Yeah. It will replace my role as a decision maker. Yeah. I think Yuval Harari, Yuval Harari, who's a great thinker, written several books on. Now, from sapiens right through to 21 rules of the 21st century, he, he believes that doctors will be replaced by sort of AI-type technologies and nurses will not be because of this human connection. I think he's wrong. I think that there'll be AI, as you say, doing things, helping us make decisions, uh, determining treatment protocols, but it would never replace that human connection we have, Max. And, Max, yeah. I, I think you've got that, uh, you know, beautifully set in the radiology practice you run, and I, I thank you very much for having a chat with me today about... Um, these aspects of radiology. Yeah, great, great work. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for joining me today in the conversation with Max Kuberschmidt, who provided a radiological perspective of management of back pain. I think Max helped us understand modalities that we may choose when we try to delineate anatomy and an underlying etiology for the back pain that we're managing. Now, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation if listened to or welcomed and maybe email to manager at gihealth.com.au.